Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know about you all, but sometimes it helps me to pause and just look at where we are in the liturgical year and where we are in the context of what led up to today. Most of you were here Sunday when we waved palm branches and we shouted together, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And for a moment, didn't it feel like Lent was over? There was hope of victory and, and excitement and anticipation of what was lacking in this world being made right. But then come Monday, we're back at our fasting and lamenting. Illness lingers. We grieve a loved one who has died. Our body feels the loneliness of disconnection. Just like those people who were ushering in Jesus as king, we find that what we envision as the victorious end doesn't end up looking like God's imagination for a victorious end. He doesn't swoop in and conquer as one who is apart from us or one who is unfamiliar with this human life, but rather as one who is acquainted with sorrow and death. He willingly enters into the deepest part of it. He feels it. He's affected by it. He interacts with it. And from that space, he invites us into the victory that bursts forth from out of death. During this week, so many years ago, it was Passover season and pilgrims from all over were coming to celebrate. Jesus and the disciples had just come to Jerusalem. On Monday, Jesus had made a scene in the temple, turning over money tables and driving people out, angry that it had become a place where extortion of money was acceptable instead of being a place of prayer. Many of the Jewish religious leaders were upset about the authority that Jesus acted with and were beginning to make plans for how to have him arrested. So things are beginning to get tense for everyone, and it's pretty likely that Jesus and the disciples had to celebrate Passover in private since they weren't in good standing with the temple authorities. Passover, or Pascha, was significant to the Jewish community because it was a time when they remembered when God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt when the blood of a lamb without blemish had been spread over their doorway, casting a shadow of hope and life and redemption on all inside. Israelites were told to eat the slaughtered lamb along with unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and they were to eat with their belt fastened, sandals on their feet, and staff in hand. They were to eat in haste, dressed and ready for the Lord's deliverance, which would soon follow. This promise of Passover deliverance is a promise that was held on to year after year and remained just as important to Jews in Jesus' time as they faced foreign rule by Rome. Cleansing the home of yeast, raising and killing the sacrificial lamb, preparing the meal and consuming it were all important markers to them that they had been delivered once before and they would be delivered again. A new kingdom would be established. That brings us to this night. I envision Jesus and the disciples are reclining together, eating and talking, and I imagine they're trying to make sense of the recent events of the week and all the uncertainty that came with it. And then Jesus speaks. He takes up some of the bread on the table and gives thanks for it, then breaks it, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he takes a cup of wine and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Of course, this was foreshadowing, 
speaking ahead to what was to come in the next 24 hours, but it was also a declaration of who Jesus had always been, why he even took on a human body in the first place. It was a new covenant. No longer were they partaking in a symbolic Passover meal. They were now being offered a meal of life through Christ's death. With the cross, Jesus drove a stake in time, a permanent invitation to always enter that moment of suffering, of sacrifice, of new covenant, every time we gather to partake of the Eucharist. Now, a lot of you guys know me, and you know I'm a total nerd about the Eucharist. I love reading books about it. You should definitely come ask me for recommendations if you're interested. Um, I often find movement in nature that reminds me of the movement found in the Eucharist. And so, so often when I come to the Eucharistic liturgy, or even when I contemplate it, there's this hum of energy in my body, like it's, it's coming alive. So I know I'm weird, but the Eucharist is weird, right? It's this wild mystery that we could spend a lifetime unpacking and still never fully comprehend. So humor me for just a few moments while we just barely scratch the surface. The word Jesus uses here when he says in remembrance is the Greek word anamnesis. When we think of the word remember, we often think of it as just a recalling to mind something from the past. But anamnesis is more involved. It includes a participation, a participation in the actual suffering and death of Christ's body, and a participation in the actual resurrection of his body. I once heard someone describe it as the opposite of dismembering. Remembering is the bringing together of all the members, us, into Christ's body. Do this in remembrance of me. Cyril of Jerusalem says this of the Eucharist, that by partaking, we come to bear Christ in us, and in so doing, we become partakers of the divine nature. The fifth century Bishop Leo the Great wrote, we become that which we consume, and we carry him everywhere, both in spirit and in body. We become that which we consume. Let that sink in for a minute. Every time we come to the Eucharist to receive, it changes us. We become that which we consume. We enter into that pivotal moment that has been opened and extended for all of time. So what kind of love has consumed us in the Eucharist? What kind of divine nature do we receive? That's what we begin to see and what the Lord does for his disciples next. So during the same supper, Jesus surprises everyone by getting up from where he's reclining, and he takes off his outer garments and ties a towel around his waist. I imagine that he's moving around the room one by one, washing the feet of everyone present. But when it's Simon Peter's turn, Peter speaks up. I'm not sure if he's feeling embarrassed or confused. I imagine it's like when you find yourself in a new social situation and you're trying to read the room and make sense of everything, pick up on the different dynamics at play. You just can't seem to make sense of it. But Peter engages with Jesus. Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter is essentially pointing out the tension of the social dynamics. Jesus would have been considered his superior and had no business washing anyone's feet. That was the job of the servants. And in the absence of servants, it wasn't Jesus' place to pick up the slack. But Jesus responds, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter is still, you shall never wash my feet. 
Jesus, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Peter resigns. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. When Jesus finishes washing everyone's feet, he puts his outer garments back on and reclines again at the table with the others, who I imagine are sitting in silence at this point. And he asks them, do you understand what I've done to you? If I am your Lord and teacher and washed your feet, you need to wash each other's feet. Okay, so if I can just back up a second to Jesus' invitation to the disciples into the Eucharist. The institution of the Eucharist set in motion something much like the tide, a coming in and a going out, a continuous cycle of this. We are invited to come in and be absorbed into the death and resurrection of Christ. But then we are sent out, as you see each week, when Deacon Courtney commissions us to go forth into the world to be the Eucharist to others. And when Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he is essentially showing us in what manner to go about this. As I spent time with this passage over the last few weeks in preparation, I kept coming back to Jesus' invitation. If I am your Lord and teacher and washed your feet, you need to wash each other's feet. This is the kind of king who rode in on a donkey. This is the kind of king who wore a crown made of thorns and gave his life for us. This is the kind of king who went to the depths of hell and destroyed it from within. Holy Week was a real set of events, and they blew open an invitation that extends through all of time into his real presence and his real kingdom. As we prepare to move into the washing of feet and Eucharist, let's take a moment to be quiet and reflect. Where does internal hesitation linger? And without ignoring that hesitation, where is their invitation as we enter this Paschal mystery? Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.